Good morning. Thank you guys for uh, joining us this morning, whether you're joining on site, so good to see all of you here, or online, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate your stopping by. We thank you really for your continued support of the ministry of Hammock Street. Your faithfulness has really meant the world to us. If you're not yet supporting Hammock Street, but would like to, you can get started today, as uh, Zach mentioned, the cash box on the wall, but also you can go to our website, hammockstreetchurch.com. There's a give tab, giving tab on that. You can set that up for uh, online giving, or you can go to our app, go to the app store, look up Hammock Street Church, you get the free app, or you can just text the word give to 561-220-5115. Have you all memorized that number yet? No, only Zach has. Anyway... For the past few weeks, we've been kind of getting ready for Easter in our series called Against All Odds. Now, what, what I wanted to do in this series is I want to make sure we all understand the context of what it is that we celebrate on Easter, because it really is, it's not just a day, but it's a, it's a culmination of a ministry, and it's, it's the beginning, really, of a movement that changed the world. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at one of the most remarkable and enlightening places in Scripture, the ancient prophecies. Now, prophecies are always cool because, you know, these things are predicted. It's not like Nostradamus who gave kind of these vague predictions and then, you know, in, in a thousand years it'll be warm and you go, wow, it's warm. He got it. You know, this is different. These prophecies that came out of the Hebrew Bible that heralded the coming of the Messiah were hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, and they were just so accurate. So to review briefly where we've been, in, in week one, in our message entitled, What are the Odds?, we looked at 24 prophecies from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah that were fulfilled by Jesus. And then the next week, we looked at the way that Jesus remained silent as he endured the six trials to which he was subjected. And his silence, too, was prophesied. And that's exactly how Jesus lived out the moment according to Old Testament prophecy. Then last week in a message entitled, He Was Counted Among the Rebels, we talked about the way in which Jesus lowered himself for us so that through him we could be raised up for God. If you missed any of these messages or you'd like to hear them again, uh, you can watch them on YouTube or on our Facebook page, or you can go to our website. It will also uh, link you there as well. Well, today we're going to look at another Old Testament prophet, so not Isaiah, another prophet, who prophesied the day that we commemorate today as Palm Sunday. And I'm entitling the message, He Entered Triumphantly. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, for gathering us together here in this building, in this place, online, virtually. We thank you for not only the freedom that we have from oppression and from persecution for our faith, but we thank you for the freedom that we have too, the freedom that we have to worship you, the freedom that we have to celebrate you, the freedom that we have to share what it is that we know about you with the lost around us. So God, as we look at the scripture this morning, we would ask that as we read through it, you would use it to enlighten us, to change our minds, to change our hearts, but most importantly, to draw us closer to you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, 
I want to give you a little bit of warning up front. There's a lot of scripture slides up here, so, so don't try to you know, memorize all of them. You won't be able to. But, but kind of take in the whole picture, because we're going to be talking about roughly 10-ish days uh, before the crucifixion, and so we're going to kind of get to see the way that everything unfolded. So a minute ago, I just said that Isaiah wasn't the only prophet to speak of Jesus's life, birth, death, or resurrection. In fact, one of the most remarkable and well-known prophecies about the Messiah was made by the prophet Zechariah. So Zechariah prophesied about the manner in which Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem on the first day of the week that we refer to as Holy Week. So today is the beginning of what we know of as Holy Week. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So to get started, we need to answer this question. Who was Zechariah, right? Well, he was what we call a minor prophet. That doesn't mean he was under 18. That just means, although he could have been, I guess, but I don't think he was. And what it really means is his book of prophecy is shorter. Isaiah is a major prophet. His book of prophecy is longer. That's what it means. So Zechariah was a minor prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Now, Zechariah's prophetic career which sounds weird when you say it that way, but there's really no other way to say it. Zechariah's period of time in his life when he was prophesying his prophetic career began during the second reign of King Darius, who was the king of Persia. Persia is where Iran is located nowadays. This was around 500 BC, so 500 years before Jesus was born. Now, the book of Ezra names Zechariah as the son of Edo, but it's more likely that he was the son of Berechiah and the grandson of Edo. So in other words, when you, when you hear things and people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself and it's not accurate, it is accurate if you understand the culture. And, and sometimes they call Jesus a son of David, and he was a, what we call in the law, a direct lineal descendant of David. But he wasn't exactly his son. He was his great, 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 whatever, grandson. But that's the way it's referred to, a son of. So... So Zechariah was a son of Edo, but he was really his grandson. Now, in Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah prophesied about the day we call Palm Sunday. And that's actually what you heard in the video. We're going to read it again. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, that's the prophecy, 500 years before Jesus was born. Again, to give you a little bit of reference, America is roughly 240 plus years old. So that prophecy was double as far away as the beginning of America was from us. So that's a long time. Now, in Zechariah's day, Israel was in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem along with all of Israel, after returning from their exile in Babylon. Remember now, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. So I always find it interesting that Iran and Iraq were always in the news these days, and they were in the news in those days too. Things happen in those places. Now, at the time, 500 BC, Jerusalem's walls were still in ruins. And so there was no gate in the walls. The walls were knocked down. But Zechariah boldly predicted that one day God's Messiah would ride triumphantly into the city, which implies there had to be a wall to get into the city, and he would arrive to shouts of joy. Now, what are the odds 
that he would be right. What are the odds that that would actually happen? But it did happen, and we celebrated every year. Now, just like our sermon last week, all four Gospels tell this week's story as well. Now, for the last few weeks, we've talked about the days leading up to Jesus' resurrection. Now, because this weekend marks the beginning of Holy Week, this morning I thought it would be helpful if we had a kind of a sense of some of the events that took place in Jerusalem on each of the days during the week leading up to the resurrection, which of course we'll talk about next week on Easter Sunday. Remember, context is key. And, and context really does remain key today, even when you're looking at information or news or current events. You gotta, if you don't know the context, you don't understand what you're hearing. So you can't just hear things in a vacuum, as they say, with nothing else around. You need context. I always like context. Now, today is Palm Sunday. And before we talk about exactly what that means, I want to set the stage by looking at the days leading up to Palm Sunday for Jesus and the disciples, the days prior to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. So, several weeks before Holy Week, because remember, traveling wasn't as easy as you get on a plane or you get in a bus or you drive to a place. You had to walk. So traveling took a while. You really had to plan. So several weeks before Holy Week began, Jesus and the 12 left where they were living, which was a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was located in northern Israel, the north part of Israel as we know it today, just north of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus and the 12 were living. That was sort of what Jesus considered to be his, his town. That was his place where he lived. And they were beginning their journey south toward Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, along the way, Jesus would stop and teach in all the villages. Okay. Now, Passover, which, by the way, began last night here in, in town, here for the Jewish people. Uh, of course, Passover is one of those moving holidays. seems like it moves around to us. It moves around because it's based on a lunar calendar, and we keep a solar calendar, so it always stays in the same place in the Jewish calendar, but it moves around for us. But Passover is the main, what they call, pilgrimage festival. What's a pilgrimage festival? Well, a pilgrimage festival was a Jewish holiday that required Jews to travel to the temple in Jerusalem in order to offer their sacrifices. Now, there are no more pilgrimage festivals because there's no more temple and there's no more sacrifices. So that's, that's not a thing anymore. But then it was. So, Jesus knew that he had to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So as a result, he paced this journey that he would be taking with the 12 so he could continue to train them until the very end. Now, before he got to Jerusalem, Jesus and the 12 arrived in a city. It was an oasis city known as Jericho. You've all heard about Jericho probably if you were in Sunday school anytime. You had Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, remember that? So Jesus arrives in Jericho, which was roughly 14 miles east and about 4,000 feet below, in elevation, Jerusalem. So, Luke's gospel begins to describe this event. So, here's what happens. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus, you've heard of him, I hope, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So, running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since Jesus was about to pass that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, down, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. 
I want to try that someday with relatives. That'd be kind of fun. Hey, today I need to stay at your house. Okay. I think I'd travel more if that worked. So Zacchaeus quickly came down, welcomed Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. Remember, he was a chief tax collector. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I give half my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. So he made restitution. Today, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. All right, so that's what happens on his way down when he got to town. When he got to Jericho. So now we're going to talk about, so this is the Friday before Good Friday. So this is a week before Good Friday. Now, in Jericho, Zacchaeus, after that event, became a follower of Jesus. So then, following Jesus' lunch with Zacchaeus, that's the meal they shared together, Jesus and his disciples hiked the grueling ascent from Jericho to Bethany which is a small village close to Jerusalem. So they had to get to Bethany, close to Jerusalem, because Bethany was the home of some very close friends of Jesus, siblings named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You've heard of them as well. Now, Jesus and the disciples had to make the 12-mile hike up to Bethany before sundown on Friday. They had a time limit. They had to get there because the Sabbath was coming. The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday. Now, by the way, this gets confusing too. Again, because the Hebrew calendar is this lunar calendar and because of all of that, the days start at different times. So they consider the day, the next day, to start at sundown the night before. That's where this gets a little confusing and we lose track because we don't do that. We think of the start of the day as when we wake up, basically, even though it starts at 12.01 midnight. But we think of it as 6 in the morning when we get out of bed. But actually, the Jews think of it as 6 p.m. the night before when the sun goes down. So after the sun goes down, during the Sabbath, no one's allowed to walk more than two-thirds of a mile. Okay, those are part of the rules. So in one afternoon, Jesus and the disciples made the trip of a dozen miles and a 4,000-foot vertical climb. Now that's weird for us because we don't have any vertical climbs here, right? I mean, Mount Dora, I think, is the highest uh, point in the state of Florida, and I believe Mount Dora sits at about 900 feet above sea level. It's not exactly a mountain, but uh, so that's 4,000-foot vertical climb. So anyway, they arrive at Lazarus's house after a 12-mile, 4,000-foot hike, and they are exhausted. So we go to the story in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, and again, don't start counting on your fingers, because remember, it gets weird with the counting because of these days starting the night before and all of that, so you'll, you'll hurt yourself if you try. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, six days before the Passover was Friday night, the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples likely rested and recovered from the journey that they'd had. So John gives us that account of that night. Actually, he began it in that verse we read before, right? So uh, this verse up here, John 12, 1. So now we're going to look at John 12, 2. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there, Sabbath dinner. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. That's what you do on Sabbath. You recline at the table. And then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, 
and anointed Jesus's feet. She rubbed it all over Jesus's feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. So this is interesting. During that time, you know how as time goes on and things change in the culture, kids' names change? When Britney Spears was on the Disney Channel, so many girls were named Britney. Do we have any Britneys in here? We have a, someone's wife is a Britney, right? That, that's how that happens. Uh, my son is named Dylan. There were a lot of Dylans named Dylan at the time my son was born because of things that were happening in the culture. So that's just the way it was. Well, during that time, about 50% of Jewish women were named Miriam after Moses' sister. Why am I telling you that? Well, Mary is the English form of the Greek name Maria, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Miriam. So Mary's name was Miriam, okay? Now, due to the prevalence of that name during that time, we are not completely sure who this Mary is in verse 3. Now, the majority of scholars have come to the conclusion that this was Mary Magdalene, who was a woman named Miriam from the town of Magdala. It was a fishing town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And she traveled with Jesus, and she was also a witness to the crucifixion. And by the way, contrary to popular belief, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. How did she get labeled a prostitute? Well, that happened in 591 AD. This is another almost 600 years into the future. After Pope Gregory I delivered a sermon in which he conflated, he accidentally mixed the story of Mary of Bethany found in Luke 10. Okay, so she's Mary of Magdala. So the story of Mary of Bethany in Luke 10 and the unnamed sinful woman found in Luke 7. So that's what happened is she got labeled as a prostitute and it kind of stuck for the next 1,500 years or so. Anyway, be careful when you call people names because it sticks. Mary's gratitude for what Jesus had done for her moved her to take her most precious possession, this alabaster jar of oils, and pour it on Jesus' feet. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that this jar of perfume was worth about a year's wages. So think about that for a minute. Whatever you make, can you imagine taking all of that money pre-tax and spending it on something that you're going to pour on somebody's feet? That's a pretty big sacrifice. So, in an act of pure love, pure gratitude, pure worship, Mary poured what was probably her entire life savings over Jesus' feet. Now, this is an extreme gift, but it's an extreme gift that was fitting for the Savior of all mankind. By the way, how do we know? Because we're talking about it today. 2,000 years later, we're still talking. Do you remember the time Mary poured all that stuff over Jesus' feet? Holy cow, that was amazing, right? We're still talking about it. But at the time, not everybody was happy about it. Because just as it happens today, generosity can often attract criticism. So in the very next verse, John 12, 4, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, we've heard of him, who was about to betray Jesus, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why did he say that? Well, Jesus explains his motivation. Jesus says in verse 6, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. So, what happened here? Well, Judas had his own agenda. Now, some people... Don't like it when others give generously because it, it forces an impulse in them that they have to give more generously. It makes them feel guilty. And some people don't like it when they see others give generously because they don't like the admiration the giver gets. They become jealous of the attention. 
But Judas didn't like it because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put into it. So if 300 denarii ended up in the bag, he would walk away with some of that money. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, they didn't know what he was talking about. They soon would. So that was Friday night. Now, the next morning was Saturday. So this is the Saturday before Palm Sunday. So on Saturday, Jesus celebrated the Sabbath like Jews still do today. He likely attended the local uh, synagogue. The synagogue is the place where people would go and study under a rabbi. It's not the temple. This is a synagogue. So he'd go to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath morning, and then the Sabbath ends at sundown that night. And then John says, then a large crowd of the Jews of the learned uh, of the Jews learned Jesus was there. So, go back to what we just talked about. Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. The people came not only because Jesus was there, but also to see Lazarus. He was kind of a famous guy in his own right because he was raised from the dead by Jesus. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus was a really good advertisement for Jesus. So the religious leader said, we ought to kill him too. All right. Then on Saturday night, Jesus mingled with a crowd, which brings us to Palm Sunday. So this is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So we go to verse 12, John 12, verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna. All right, what's happening here? By the way, did you ever notice that the Bible talks like this? It says, that night, the next day, the next morning. Like You never really pay attention to the fact that it's progressing in time. You just see it there, but this is how... It works. So what's happening? The crowd was expecting Jesus to come in as a victorious king. That's why they had the palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of victory. So anyone who could raise someone from the dead, they figured, could surely defeat the Roman oppressors. So as they were laying down these palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. John 12, 15, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, whenever a pilgrimage festival took place in Jerusalem, the Romans, remember the Romans were occupying Jerusalem at the time, they got really nervous because there were going to be Huge crowds in Jerusalem, far bigger than Jerusalem's normal population. There would be hundreds and thousands of people. Some people estimate maybe up to a million people. So it was the Roman custom to send in a column of the imperial cavalry. Not cavalry, by the way. Cavalry. So cavalry is where people ride horses. Soldiers ride horses. Calvary is the hill upon which Jesus was crucified. It's easy to get those confused. But it was a Roman custom to send in the cavalry along with armed soldiers in order to keep the peace by demonstrating Roman power. So in other words, the place is going to be filled with Jewish pilgrims from all over the region, all over the world really. And the Romans are like, don't get any ideas about revolution here. We're going to remind you that we are the world's superpower. 
And we're also going to remind you of the way we believe there's a God and he works. And that is, the Romans believe that the emperor was the son of God. So imagine the scene. Roman horses. So picture the steeds you've seen in all the movies. And they come galloping in. And the soldiers are armed. And they're marching. Right? You hear that? And the drums are beating. There's drummers keeping, keeping the cadence. And the banners are waving. And the leather is squeaking. And they're Sandals are hitting the ground, making noise. Okay, so that's a pretty big scene. That's a scene of a military entry. And then, in an intentional, stark contrast to all of that, on the other side of town, through another gate, Jesus comes in. And he is not riding a mighty steed. And he is not accompanied by heavily armed soldiers. He doesn't have a drummer keeping the cadence. He is riding on a donkey. Right? Yee-haw. That's what he's doing. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy about the future king. The king whom he described as one who would be a king of peace. This is Zechariah 9.10. The king will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. The king will destroy all the weapons used in battle and he will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. All right, that's the king of peace. Now, don't miss the contrast. On one side of the city, you have Pilate's procession, which represents the Roman kingdom, and it embodies power and glory and violence of that empire that ruled the world. And then on the other side of the city, you have Jesus's procession, which embodied an alternate vision. So we go back to John chapter 12. Jesus' disciples didn't understand these things at first. So they don't know what's going on here. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. So people from Bethany were also up there in Jerusalem with him. This is also why the crowd met him because they'd heard that he'd done this sign, that he'd raised Lazarus. Verse 19, then the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So you notice the tension. There's a crowd of supportive people. They showed it in that video actually fairly well. And then there's a crowd of opponents. And John is reporting this to us. So John does a pretty good job of highlighting the high that the crowd felt, but He forecasted the low that would be coming shortly. But that's not all that happened. So now we go to Luke's gospel. As Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept, saying, If you knew this day, if you knew this day, what would bring peace, but is now hidden from your eyes? For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. All right, then after his donkey ride, he goes into the temple. He begins to throw out those who are selling And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. A few things here I just wanted to point out. One, what these 
people were doing in the temple courts. They called them the money changers, okay? What does that mean? Well, you know when you go to the mall and you see the exchange booth in the middle of the mall, or you see it at the airport as well, and we, we get people here in South Florida, they're traveling from all over the world, at least they used to before COVID, and you come in with the money that you have wherever you live, your euros in Europe or whatever else you're spending in your country, but you're in America now, so you need dollars. So you go to the exchange booth and they read you the exchange rate and they give you money for your money, right? That's how that works. Well, that's what the money changers were essentially doing too because people were coming from all over the world with their own local currency and they had to come to Jerusalem to buy animals for, uh, for sacrifice. They probably had to buy food for themselves or whatever, but they had local currency. So they had to go to the money changers to change the money into Jewish money or into Roman money, okay? But the money changers, they didn't have a chart that told them what the official exchange rate was. So the money changers made it up themselves. So what did they do? Well, they took more. Back in the old days, before the, uh, before the Soviet Union fell, when, uh, when you would go to visit from West Germany to East Germany, if you remember, West Germany was sort of controlled by the English, French, and Americans. East Germany was controlled by the Russians. When you switched over from West to East Germany, you had to change your West German money to East German money. Now, the West German money was worth about 50 times what the East German money was worth, but the exchange rate they gave you wasn't 50 to 1, it was 4 to 1. They really ripped you off. And then they made sure you had to spend all your money while you're in East Germany. You weren't allowed to walk out with it. I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, I went over to East Berlin and I changed a bunch of money and there was nothing to buy in East Berlin, so I couldn't spend it. So I went out and I bought, kids, don't do this. I don't smoke. But the only thing I could buy was cigarettes. So I bought as much East German cigarettes as I could possibly find just to spend all the money because they wouldn't let me out without spending the money. Took the cigarettes out, got back to West Germany, found the first homeless person I could find. And I said, hey, do you smoke? And he said, yeah. And I said, here you go. Here's some cigarettes for you. And he took one. This is a homeless person. Took one, Homeless smoker. Took one look at the bag. Saw it was East German cigarettes and threw the bag to the side. Said, ah! Like that. So, yeah, it's just, I don't know why that came to me, but it, it, it did. So anyway, that's the story of the money changers. By the way, also... It is written that my house will be a house of prayer. Is that referring to a church? Is a church referred to as a house of prayer? Many think it is. It's not. My house, Jesus is talking, what's he talking about? The temple. Okay, temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There is no more temple, just so you know. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, you have made the temple a den of thieves. Okay, on Palm Sunday, the first day of the most important week in the life of the most important person who has ever lived... Jesus received prayer and praise as he rode into Jerusalem. On that same day, Jesus wept over the future destruction of the people and the city, which did happen. And Jesus went into the temple to worship, but wound up cleansing it of the money changers who were taking advantage of the people rather than helping them connect with God. So that's what happened on Palm Sunday, the day that we commemorate today. Now, on to the rest of the week, because that's only Sunday, and we've got a, almost a week before the crucifixion. So what happens the rest of the week? What happens Monday through Wednesday? Well, we're about to find out. So according to Luke, here's what happens next. Every day, Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill Jesus. But they couldn't find a way to do it because the people were captivated by what they heard. In other words, they couldn't just go out and kill Jesus because there would be a revolution. There would be a riot, and they didn't want that. So what happened? Monday through Wednesday, Jesus basically followed the same routine. He and the disciples slept overnight in Bethany, woke up in the morning, 
I think there was free breakfast at the hotel. They had a little free breakfast, you know, the omelet bar. Then they walked two miles to town. And during the day, Jesus taught at the temple. He healed the sick. He, he sparred with the religious leaders. Lots of discussion back and forth. They tried to discredit him and trap him through, through theoretical and theological questions. Jesus parried back, volleyed back every single fight. And then every night, Jesus went back to Bethany, trained his disciples, and got them ready for what he knew was to come. So that's Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week. Now, we get to Thursday, Maundy Thursday. All right, so on Thursday, Jesus changes his pattern. His confrontations with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, had, had escalated every single day at the temple. He knew they were looking to seize him. He knew it was close, but he had one more thing to do. So, the beginning of that day, he laid low, resting two miles away in Bethany. Luke describes the events for us. In Luke 22.1, the festival of the unleavened bread, called the Passover, again, which began here in our community last night, was approaching. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. So, Jesus made arrangements for the Passover dinner, for the Seder meal, but he didn't tell his disciples where it was going to be. He didn't tell his disciples where the Last Supper was going to take place. Why? Because Judas was among the disciples, and he didn't want Judas to know yet. He didn't want Judas to have a shot at betraying him before Jesus did what he had to do. All right. Then Jesus sends out Peter and John to make preparations, and we refer to that day as Maundy Thursday. Have you all heard Maundy Thursday before? Some have, some haven't. Yeah, it's a Catholic thing that you hear it mostly at, maybe Lutheran, maybe Episcopal. Well, the word Maundy derives from the Latin word mandatum, which means commandment or mandate, because on that night, Jesus issued a new commandment. Remember that in John 13? I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. By the way, this is a really good point for us. How will the world know that we belong to Jesus? By our t-shirts? No. By the stickers on our car? No. By the political party to which we belong? No. By the candidate we support? No. How will they know? By the way we love. Right out of Jesus' mouth. I didn't make it up. He said it. Okay? Now we're going to read the, the story from Luke. Then the day of unleavened bread came, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That is the Thursday night in the upper room. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. From Follow him into the house he enters. By the way, isn't that like one of the TV shows you see where there's like a pickup that's going to take place? How will I know the person? Go to the train station. Look for the guy with the gold briefcase. Like that's a, kind of what it is, right? So that's what happens. And then verse 11, tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, Jesus asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs, make preparations there. So Judas hears all this, but he still doesn't know where it's going to be yet. The other guys would find out. So it's very secretive. Jesus didn't want anybody to know where he was going to be so that he would have time to initiate our communion that we know of and we celebrate and talk about. We'll do that again on Good Friday and teach and pray over the disciples one more time. So what happened? They went and found it just as Jesus had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, 
Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. All right, so we're at Thursday night. We're in the upper room. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is about to face the worst night of anyone's life. And yet he was fully engaged and never stopped expressing his love to his disciples. Just imagine how powerful that must have been. And then came Friday. Now, as we talked about in the second week of our sermon series, on Good Friday, Jesus endured six trials, all between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m., three of them at the hands of the Roman government, three of them at the hands of the Jewish leaders, and all six of the trials were illegally held. They were based upon bogus charges. None of the trials had any substantiating witnesses which would have been required under both Roman and Jewish law for any conviction to issue forth. Between the trials, Jesus was beaten by Roman soldiers. Remember that with the cat of nine tails, 39 lashes. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He, he had a crown of thorns placed on his head. He was crucified on Golgotha, on Calvary, between two criminals. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. That's what we're going to talk about on Good Friday. Which brings us to what we call Holy Saturday. Jesus descended into Hades. So what happens to Jesus after the crucifixion, which is called Holy Saturday? He spends it in the grave. Now, how many people have heard of or read or recited the Apostles', the Apostles Creed? Y'all have heard that? Some? Most of you? Okay. Well, we'll talk about it actually on Good Friday. In the Apostles' Creed, we say Jesus descended into hell. We always also get the same notion from Acts chapter 2, verse 24 through 31. What does that mean? Well, what that precisely means is a very confusing theological question, which we're not going to have time to talk about today. Otherwise, I won't be able to let you out of here for a while. So for our purposes, the issue is not completely settled. But for our purposes, most scholars interpret it to mean that Jesus' human soul descended not into hell as we know it, but rather into Hades, which is spoken of more in the New Testament, as the place of departed souls in the Hebrew Bible. So specifically... These scholars hold that Jesus descended into that region reserved for the souls of the righteous, not the region where the wicked are tormented, okay? They hold that this was necessary because it subjected Jesus' soul to the judicial punishment of true human death. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you because we'll talk about it on Easter Sunday, but on Resurrection Sunday... Jesus rose from the dead. If you didn't know that yet, well, try to look surprised on Sunday morning. Jesus rose from the dead that day. He walked seven miles with some friends to a town called Emmaus. He walked through a wall in Jerusalem where he was greeted by a dumbfounded group of disciples who were like, oh, I, boss, I thought you were dead. Remember that's where Doubting Thomas, where we meet Doubting Thomas. Their dreams were shattered forever when they thought he was dead, and now he just proved to them he was really alive. He ate some fish with them. They prepared for their evening meal. That's what happened that week. What a week it was, and it was all predicted by the prophets. Now, these things happened. 
They happened in history. They happened in time and space. These things were beheld by eyewitnesses. These things were recorded for posterity. And when we come to understand that notwithstanding our innate sinfulness, our innate brokenness, when we come to understand that Jesus loves us anyway, and out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected forever to God by paying for all of our sins on the cross and then coming back from the dead, having paid for those sins. When we turn from our natural selves and make Jesus our Lord and Savior, then we become the beneficiaries of God's blessings because Jesus is the crucified Lord. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Savior who was alive, who died, and is alive again. He's the one that we'll celebrate next weekend. And so my encouragement to you today is this. Let him have your life today and for eternity And just watch how God uses you in a mighty way. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for just the ability that we have to to talk about Palm Sunday. And to talk about the things that happened 2,000 years ago. Long before we were around. Long before we were a glimmer of a glimmer of a glimmer. 2,000 years ago, though, God, you chose us, you called us, and you saved us. So, God, as we head into this holy week, we ask that we continue to remember that. We hold that close to the front of our minds so that we can focus a bit on just how magnificent you are and just how blessed we are because of your grace. God, we thank you for all of this. We look forward to this week and to gathering together to celebrate next weekend. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.